We're looking at the subject today of getting a grip on your thoughts. If you note in the bulletin outline, the first point that we want to consider is should we rely on Christian consensus to establish our thought life? I'm thinking this way, having been born of grace by faith in Christ, that faith in the Lord seems in many to have been replaced by human logic and reasoning to such a degree that when such people are confronted with the decisions of life or family or for themselves, they often resort to the latest understanding as fostered by the Christian consensus. Y'all know what I mean. Or more brashly, they assume that because they are born of the Spirit, their own thought processes are automatically spiritually sound on whatever issue confronts them so that it's perfectly safe to trust their own reasoning in these matters. Well, when we do that, we're right back to where we were when we were people of the world. Just, you know, go with yourself. Go with your own thoughts. So what, ha what happens here is that what is logical is viewed as biblical. What is reasonable is seen to be the wisdom of God. What is their understanding is put for the divine will for their life. Now in those a bit more timid about their own personal assessment of their understanding, then they're content to rely upon the Christian professionals, as I call them. Those who believe that it is possible to wed, let's say, human psychology or human philosophy with the Bible and come up with an amalgamation which is both spiritual and full of uh, God's truth. Now whether you agree or disagree with such a hybrid as Christian psychology, the truth of the matter is in my experience that if I as a pastor, for example, if I quoted 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, I'll just give you a part of it, which states, among other things, that drunkards and thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God because of these unrepentant, get it now, sins. And someone else opposes that truth by quoting from a well-known uh, Christian psychologist who views both drunkenness and thievery as illnesses that can be treated by drugs and counseling. There are many in the Christian community who would believe that and go the psychological route. Well, it's an illness. By the way, when you go the medical model for sin, alcoholism instead of drunkard, kleptomania for instead of thievery, when you go the medical model, you really destroy hope. Why? Because God has not promised to heal all of our diseases. But he has promised to forgive us and cleanse us of all of our sins. So we think we're doing good here to go to the medical model. But if we stick with the biblical model, there's hope for that person. There's help for that person. And there's recovery. And we've seen it so many times in Christian counseling. 
So if you believe that the secularist is right, then my quote of the scripture, my explanation that drunkenness and thievery are not alcoholism or kleptomania, respectively, but are chosen sinful lifestyles contrary to the revealed will of God, that would be viewed as somehow misrepresentative of truth. Perhaps not intentionally, but basically because I'm not as enlightened as I could be if I had taken a little more training in uh, the human sciences at the university. What about this? Can we as Christian people trust our own thinking in matters of life, assuming that because we are indwelled by the Spirit of God, we are now having a sanctified logic and understanding which is in harmony, walking the same way as God would have us walk? Let me ask this question. Is our knowledge of things intuitive as part of the new nature in Christ so that we need not consciously concern ourselves with thinking Christian thoughts about life? Or to ask it another way, does being Christian make our, Christi- or make our thinking Christian automatically? You, do you have a work to do in this? Or you just, now, now that you have Christ as Savior, now that you've put your faith in Him, you are, you're going to think God's thoughts automatically. Let me put it another way. Because our conscience is clear in some matters of controversy, does that mean that we stand with truth and that is why our conscience is clear? Just this week, two teenagers beat to death an 88-year-old World War II veteran just to do it. No conscience about it when they were questioned afterwards. Last week, three youth decided they would go out and kill somebody for the fun of it. And they picked an Australian uh, athlete who was training in our country for the Olympics, a visitor to our country, and they just went out and killed him for the fun of it. You trust your conscience? You say, well, as believers, we have a different mindset. We have a different conscience. Yes, but even so, aren't we struggling with the remains of the old nature. If anyone is surprised here that Christians sin, don't be surprised. We do sin. That's why we need a Savior. You say, well, you claim to have found the Savior. Yes, but we're still struggling with the sinful nature. And anyone who says they aren't, John says in his first letter, then you are a liar and a deceiver because God says you are struggling with that indwelling sin. And beyond ourselves, if we lack personal trust in our own abilities, may we trust that other Christians who have spent time studying in the human sciences are trustworthy teachers because after all, they love the Lord as we love the Lord and they do not intentionally lead anyone to disobey God. So here we are into the Christian consensus. 
What do you think? What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Well, the late, well this book said, well, and on and on we go. And finally, where does living by faith come in? Is faith only for the big things of life? You know, healing from cancer, recovering from a serious auto accident, things we have no control over anyway. Well, yeah, then that's where we need to have faith. Or is faith in God proven by an obedient life, the very essence of everything that we say and do? Faith, in other words, for all of life, not just the big things. Well, if we look at the example of Paul, in this text, Paul and the gospel were under scrutiny, and I might say under attack. So he addresses the principles concerning these questions in our text. He was under attack, look at verse 2, by some people, he says, who accused him of living his life by the standard of the world. Literally, it says, according to the flesh. Now, not meaning that he was somehow living a sinful life, but rather that he was not, you know, he was not up to par when it came to preaching and teaching, and thus the Corinthian church could do a whole lot better. These accusers claimed, I'll read it for you, verse 10, his letters, and we're reading one of them, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. This is their assessment. Even now, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, his approach is one of an appeal. Look at that, verse 1. He's appealing to them. He is beseeching them by the, he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he talks about, you know, later on in the text about when I come to you, am I going to have to be harsh with you? I don't want to be harsh. I'm, I'm appealing to you now to get your act together. And to realize what these super apostles, who claim to be super apostles, are doing as they come in and stir the pot, stir up anger and opposition to the gospel. This had been his method of presenting the gospel all along. But these people who had come into the assembly at Corinth who toted themselves as super apostles, chapter 11, verse 5. Now that's where you have to take the two chapters together here because there were no chapter divisions in the original writings of the New Testament. They just went on and on and on. So these super apostles viewed meekness as weakness and gentleness as cowardliness. That's often the same, you know. A Christian is evaluated by the world, well, a bunch of weak, willed, meek, you know. Instead of seeing it as meekness, they see it as weakness. They did not see these as Christian values at all, and that is why they accused Paul's speech as amounting to nothing. Verse 10. Now my point is, one would have hoped that the Corinthian church would have seen through the attack of, on Paul and would have defended him against such false accusations, but instead they began to imbibe these things and began to view Paul in the same way that these false teachers were viewing them. 
or viewing him, I should say. And so the resultant clash between the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul in our text was one of differing worldviews concerning the way Christians should think, speak, act. And I'm going to have a lesson later on the whole idea of worldview and how it all fits in reference to how we live our lives. But the point here is that the gospel was at stake. For this reason, the Apostle Paul was ready to use apostolic severity if it came to that. In verse 2, he speaks about expecting to be bold with these troublemakers if necessary. In verse 6, he says that he's ready to punish every act of disobedience. You say, well, who does he think he is? He's an apostle appointed by Christ, the Lord of the church. A sent out ambassador with the authority of Christ. But that's not his desire. He would rather uh, that the Corinthian church have a complete obedience. That's the way he says it. By which he means that they need to exercise some church discipline on these deceivers for their own security and their own spiritual well-being. But will they do it? Probably not. Why not? Chapter 11, verse 3. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led away from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you, if someone comes to you is not, in the Greek language here, they have different classes of if clauses. And we use if clauses to say if, but I don't know. Third class Greek construction is if in the word in the sense of since. This has taken place. For since someone has come to you, it has already happened, you see, and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus that we preach, or since you receive a different spirit from the one you receive, or a different gospel from the one you accepted it, you put up with it easily enough. So what he's saying is, you know, I preach one thing. I preach to you the truth. You were saved under my ministry. Now these super dudes come in. And they're preaching something different. And it, it's, it's not only different. It's opposite of what I preach to you. And you're saying, oh yeah, okay. Oh, well, you're just sucking it in, you know, imbibing it in. So you see, they're already hooked. They are already participating in the deception. They have been sidetracked already by the false philosophies of these teachers. And it is highly unlikely, short of God granting them repentance, that they will take Paul's counsel and cast the troublemakers out. In short, they agree with the philosophical thrust of the super apostles and now believe that this is how they should live their lives. This church is in trouble because of this. Now, just what was it that these false teachers were doing? Why does Paul say to the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to him, chapter 11, verse 2, but he's now fearful that these people are trusting in a different Jesus and, a, and possessing a different spirit and imbibing a different gospel than what they had originally committed to. 
He's fearful for them. He sees them sitting on the edge, wavering. Why should they be wavering? It's because the false teachers with the false gospel are making some points, some inroads. And he's saying, you know, these people are not up to your good. They're up to your ruin, and you need to wake up and smell roses. So what was the sin of the false teachers? Number one, they represented Paul to the Corinthians in such a way as to portray him as an inferior leader, one who was given to excessive timidity, as Dr. Carson says, a third-rate preacher who had too little background in spiritual and visionary experiences to be entitled to give direction and instruction to the Corinthian church. In other words, the guy you're listening to, Paul, he just is, you know, he's just not up to par. In short, they, they charged Paul, he, he can't cut the mustard when it comes to us. And I don't know what cut the mustard means. My, that's, that's something my grandmother used to say all the time. I, I think, I know what it implies is that you just can't, you know, you can't cope. You can't reach the goal you want. Did they actually go out and cut mustard? <laughs> mustard plants or whatever? I don't know. But they viewed themselves among the intellectually elite whose abilities far outstripped the meager efforts of the Apostle Paul. So here it is. Here's their little plan. We'll come in and we'll denigrate the Apostle Paul. And if we can get the Corinthian church to view the Apostle Paul as being mediocre and not really on his game, then we can make inroads. They presented themselves as being people living on the higher plane. Paul was of this world, living among the rudimentary things of the age. They were orators of the highest caliber, able to use persuasive logic, human ingenuity, polished rhetoric and the like to sway their hearers and take them to where no one has ever gone before. Corinth, you see, was a Greek culture steeped in sophistry. Sophistry is, um, it gets its name from the Greek word, one of the Greek words for wisdom, Sophia, from which we get the woman's name, Sophia. I like that name. But we have others, sophisticated comes from sophistry. Same word. And sophistry means a supreme knowledge, an insight into mysteries, hidden secrets, the ability to perceive and know. But along with the Greek idea, the ability to relate what is known through cleverly devised arguments and convincing rhetoric. So you see, the idea there. Such ways of communication were taught in the Greek schools, which developed a stylized presentation to be used in debates and orderly uh, lectures. 
They even had debating societies in the Greek culture. And, and so that was the whole idea here. So these selfists then applied this criteria to Paul, and they found him lacking. Well, you know, he, he's so unpolished. He just, you know, his vocabulary is crude. The way he says things, the way he puts his sentences together, it, you know. And they applied this to Paul. But here's the question. Is the criteria Christian? Should we be doing that? Is it biblical to hang the truth of a subject on the way it is presented? While the listener be absorbed in the truth that's taught, or will he be absorbed in the teacher doing the teaching? That's a fallacy. I think it's one thing to leave a presentation and say, my, wasn't he a wonderful speaker? Wasn't she a wonderful speaker? Quite another thing to leave the presentation and say, wasn't the Jesus that was presented in the message a wonderful Savior? You see? I have a thing up here on the pulpit behind which Mel put on the, the cover of this when he made this, and it says this, Sir, we would see Jesus, which smacks at the sophistry that was going on in Pauline day and also goes in our day, and that's a good reminder to me or anyone who stands here. It isn't about the presenter. It's about the presentation who is and the message of the presentation, who is Christ. So these sophists didn't much care about what was said, so long as it was said cleverly, correctly, with irrefutable logic, with polished style. All of that. Look at verse 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. But they, they thought they were, you know. But that's what he says. You know, these sophists, <clears throat> they would even sometimes go so far as to take an opposite position to known and accepted truth. Now get this. They would take an opposite position to known and accepted truth, kind of the devil's advocate, and argue its merits to prove how convincingly they could sway an audience. You could even sway them from truth into error on purpose if you were really skilled at doing that. So you see what's going on. It's a kind of self-centered pride that showed that they cared little about their audience but only about themselves. And yet they had the audacity to look down their nose at Paul and to portray him to the Corinthians as one unworthy of their attention and loyalty. Well, guess what? It was Paul. It was Paul, not them who had sacrificed greatly 
to get the gospel to this province of Achaia and to the Corinthians in particular. He had far gone living expenses from them, chapter 11, verse 7. But his preaching the gospel to them for free of charge was itself viewed as contemptible. They turned that, his good intent, into evil. The charge being something like this, well, you know, his message is so rudimentary, it, it can't even command a price. No one will pay to come hear him. Nor was he deceptive, clever, witty, no storytelling. He wasn't secretive in his presentation, no secret agenda. As he had written to them in his first letter, let me read it for you. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, how clever I am, but on God's power. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4. So he came and he preached to them the gospel, not with any idea, oh, what a wonderful preacher. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad. No, they, they wanted to... He wanted them to see Christ. And yet the false apostles had been and continued to be deceitful workmen. I'm reading scripture. Deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. Chapter 11 verse 13. Like the servants of Satan that they were. And believe me brethren with the airwaves today and the television and so forth. And the lack of understanding of the scriptures or preaching the scriptures, we have the false apostles or preachers on TV and elsewhere because they can be, you know, they, they can be. They, if they're willing to pay the price to, to air their programs and so on, they can be on the air and they masquerade as preachers of Christ while they preach a different gospel. Where is the power of these False teachers' words, think about this. They boast, they brag, they pat each other on the back, they ridicule and defame the Apostle Paul. But where's the power of their message? And let me ask it this way. What lies have been changed for the good because of their sermons? What sacrifices have they made as apostles to compare with the Apostle Paul? He, he talks about that in length, chapter 11. Verse 22 and following. On the contrary, these false teachers were enslaving the Corinthians, taking advantage of them, pushing themselves forward, slapping the brethren in the face. But Paul did none of these things. Chapter 11, verse 20 and 21. By the Greek standard of the day, Paul was a failure as a leader, as a teacher, as a debater. But by everything holy and pure, he was one whose commendation was from the Lord, chapter 10, verse 18. None of these super apostles had these credentials. But that's the first thing that was sinful. They're trying to get ahead by tearing down the apostle Paul. Trying to get an inroad by making him look silly and stupid compared to them. Being ignorant. He's a nobody. His teaching is zero. He's a nothing. 
Listen to us. The second great sin of these false teachers was that they were opportunists. Dr. Hodge in his commentary calls them interlopers. That is, a person who intrudes into the affairs of another, one who encroaches on the rights and prerogatives of others. Noah Webster's dictionary, and I use the unabridged dictionary, he writes, an interloper is to, uh, to interlope is to run between parties and to intercept the advantage that one should gain from the other. It's like um, stealing the advantage. You didn't do the work, but you reach in there just about when things are coming to a head and things are going to blossom and you reach in there and grab the prize. I was watching a baseball game in the playoffs the other year. Guy smacked. Ooh, center field. Home run. Heading right out there. But it was falling just short of the wall that they have there. The outfield man was running. He was right there ready to catch it. And a fan <laughs> reached over the wall and grab the ball in a playoff game. Interloper. The advantage that would have gone to that team had the baseball player caught the ball. I don't think he probably had any remorse or anything. He got the ball, and that's what he wanted. But that's the, inter that's the idea of the interloper. The advantage was taken away from the team that had hit the home run. These false teachers didn't have enough umption in their gumption to go out and raise their own following and acquire their own disciples. No, they had to come to Corinth into territory plowed, seeded, and cultivated by the labor and sweat of the Apostle Paul and now attempt to steal the fruit of the harvest. And that is why Paul talks about confining his boasting. Look at it, verse 13 of our text to the field God had assigned to him, a field that reached as far as Corinth. What's he saying? He's saying, well, you know, I'm not trying to steal somebody else's sheep. I'm working in the field that God sent me to. Unlike these false apostles, Paul says, neither do we go beyond our limits. Think of borders here. Neither do we go beyond our borders by boasting of work done by others. Verse 15. Or again, where's the real fruit of these false teachers? What have they done which is so commendable? They congratulate themselves, but it is self-applause. It's the measure of a ministry blessed, but is it a measure of the ministry blessed and sanctioned by God? And it's not. They were sheep stealers, being wolves in sheep's clothing and wolves in disguise among the sheep. That isn't very safe for the sheep. No wonder Paul is jealously fighting back with a, he calls it a godly jealousy. Chapter 11, verse 2. I don't want to see this happen to you guys. Why are you listening to these people? And he's not fighting for his own reputation, but he's fighting for the very lives of the Corinthian church because 
of their lack of discernment, they are putting up with those who would enslave them. Chapter 11, verse 20. They're, they're just taking it. They're imbibing it. Now what then is the answer to the sins of these super, super saints? And how should we conduct ourselves so that we do not fall into the same trap as the Corinthian church? Well, Paul's first answer is this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. In spiritual battles, we're not using worldly weapons. What about the sophist claim that Paul and his person was, and this is their, their terminology, was unimpressive and his speech nothing. Verse 10. Does this mean that Paul was a little wimp of a man, short, bent over Jew, someone whose very stature commanded no presence among his hearers? Not at all. They were referring to his presentation, to his style. His demeanor and delivery. In Paul's own words, he told the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. Now, it's not that Paul somehow thought his gospel to be inferior to the wisdom of the Greeks. He already knew that the gospel was viewed as foolishness to them. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. He was weak and trembling because his humility and meekness made him so. To put it another way, he didn't feel worthy to the task to represent the Lord of glory. That's the way we ought to all approach teaching. The elders approached Rick to teach the adult class. That was kind of the response from him. But he had a willing heart, willing to do it. Not Oh yeah, I'll do it. I was waiting for you guys to wake up and ask me to do something like that. It's a totally different approach. The way to defeat the sophisticated and arrogant nature of the false teachers who come among us at times is not by becoming one of them and then trying to out-argue or outsmart them. Such tactics belong to the world, but our weaponry is not of the world. What a shallow shell it is to build one's labors on the charisma of the speaker. Stupid. Brethren, Christians sin greatly every time they are critical of a speaker because his English isn't impeccable, his pronunciations are less than perfect. His tie is crooked. His suit is threadbare. His personal aura isn't necessarily what it needs to be. Are these things as important as the gospel that's being presented? If you're caught up in the presentation and miss the person being presented who is Christ, then you're like these arrogant, snobby, one-upmanship people at Corinth who couldn't see the blessing of God if it walked up and bit them in the nose. They were saved because Paul brought the gospel to them. 
and God worked in their heart. Paul nearly died for them to bring them the gospel. If you read the history in the Acts, the cities that where he was beaten and imprisoned and all of those things as he's working his way to Macedonia to get to Achaia and Corinth. And they were ready to dismiss him because he wasn't sophisticated enough. There's a pride in the Christian community which smells to high heaven at times. It's the pride of knowledge. It's the pride of self-sufficiency. We dote over men who have their doctorates, who are careful to maintain titles and human achievements in education. We will hike over hill and dale to hear a popular speaker, but we find it difficult to be faithful to the local church. Some other man can tell us something or we can read it in his books and we will think we died and went to heaven. A healthy exercise, and I wouldn't recommend this too often, obviously, but a healthy exercise might be just to visit some other churches and listen to what is being pass for the gospel ask yourself if your soul could grow mature and maintain its spiritual equilibrium on a steady diet of candy cotton you need to ask yourself that secondly the spiritual weaponry possessed by the true believer demolishes strongholds look at verse 4 and verse 5 we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God here's where the war is it's the battle for the mind for the thoughts now the word arguments here is cognate of a term that Paul uses elsewhere which is translated thoughts Romans 12 verse 1 speaking of the pagan heart they neither glorified God glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish heart was darkened let me tell you that futile thinking and foolish thinking are not a very good combination this is a theme that Paul pursues in writing to the Corinthians because they are Greeks who idolize human thinking And so the apostle stresses again and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that the thoughts of the wise are futile. 1 Corinthians 3 3 verse 20, he's talking about the worldly wise. Now it isn't thinking that's futile. It's the thoughts that come out of that thinking. The worldly wisdom that is futile. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6 and following. We, we apostles, we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of the age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, and it's hidden by sin and superstition and human wisdom and human arrogance and pride, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers understood this, Else they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't get it. And the proof that they didn't get it is when God showed up on earth in the person of his son, 
the Lord Jesus, they killed him. We don't want to hear any of that. The elite of the aged missed Christ. But he came. And so you have in scripture this God turning away from the aristocrats and the elite crowd, the sophists, the know-it-alls, to the poor, the humble, the ignorant, the guy on the street, the tradesman, and on and on and on you go. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is isn't mighty, many mighty that are saved, many noble that are saved. There are some, but it isn't in the many category. So when Paul says in our text, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, he's not suggesting that he will out-debate any of his contemporary rivals of the day. That's exactly what he is not saying. In Philippians 2 verse 14, he tells believers, do everything without complaining or arguing. You see, arguing, debating is exactly the tactics of the false teachers who had intruded into the Corinthian church. And that's part of the worldly weaponry which Paul repudiates. I'm not here to argue. I'm here to present. Don't we run into people all the time that like to argue about the Bible or argue about theology? It's not our job to grab them by the arm and twist their arms until they holler, Uncle. It's not our job to try to out-argue them. But it's our job to present the gospel, to present the truth, and the Spirit of God to do his work with that truth. So, to the contrary, Paul's weaponry is spiritually endorsed, being itself the armor of God. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of faith, uh, of faith salvation, and the only offensive weaponry, Ephesians 6, the word of God. Everything else is to protect and so forth. But the one offensive weaponry is the word of God, which the writer of Hebrews says is a sharp sword. This is the weaponry which demolishes the thinking of men and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. People's wrong thinking needs to be changed. Your wrong thinking needs to change. My wrong thinking needs to change. Our sinful thought patterns need to be abolished and righteous ways of thinking put in their place. Where am I going to get righteous thinking? How, how, how am I going to come up with righteous thinking? Am I going to use myself and my own morality as my standard? No, we go to the book and we see what God calls sin and what he calls righteousness and we adopt his thoughts. The way we construct our lives, the foundation upon which we make decisions in life. All of these must be demolished when they are set in juxtaposition to the knowledge of God. God is wiser, knows more, and he certainly knows what he approves and disapproves, and it's our job to lock into his mindset. On a practical level, this means the gospel must be the basis of our thinking. The gospel is more than the ABCs of the faith. The writer of Hebrews says that in Hebrews 6, 1 and following. Repentance from sin, faith in God, instruction in baptism, talk of laying on of hands, the resurrection, eternal judgment. He calls that all the ABCs of the faith. He says, can't you get past that? Can't you get on with life? 
And as important as these things are to the gospel, the writer of Hebrew calls them the elementary teachings about Christ. They're elementary. And he urges his readers in his words, go on to maturity. Get past it. Let me tell you, the gospel is anything the word of God touches on and gives instruction about. That's as simple as I can put it for you. The secret things belong to God, that's true, but what he reveals to us belong to us. That's why he revealed them. And they're designed by God to be believed by us and put into practice. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Let's take a few examples. What about child rearing? The Bible speaks of the rebellious child, the child left to his own way, the ignorant child, the disobedient to parent child, the young child, the wise child. And it addresses parents on how to rear their children. And he says the rod and reproof give wisdom. Parental example is essential in modeling. Wise counsel from parents in the form of biblical instruction. All these things are needed. They're needed as well as the use of reward to commend good behavior. It's not just rod, it's not just reproof. The third R, reading, writing, arithmetic, the third R spiritually in raising your kid is reward. So what are you doing in this area? An unbelieving social worker tells you that spanking is child abuse, that it's cruel and inhumane. So... What have you done about that? Reverted to chatter, trying your best to reason with a two-year-old. How's that going for you? The biblical means for rearing children is viewed as old-fashioned and archaic, even harmful. Parents are told to trust the experts. That the best modeling can be done by the daycare personnel and that children can't memorize the scriptures because they're just too young. Donna proves the lie to that every Sunday in the nursery. And we start to believe this stuff. Maybe even enough to abandon the gospel. You have faith in human wisdom, but not in the word of God. So people are running their lives by Dr. Spock or Dr. Lyndon Smith or more recently by Dr. Oz. Pragmatism is the philosophy of life, just like the people of the world. What about marriage? What about divorce? The Bible says that God hates divorce. I think he's changed his view on that. Malachi 2, verse 16. God says that whoever divorces and remains, remarries except for immorality on the part of the other spouse becomes an adulterer. Matthew 19, verse 9. But we're too sophisticated to believe that. We know better. Don't we? We know that if a man is a bum, won't work to support his family, that's a grounds for divorce. We know that if he abuses his wife verbally or physically, that's a grounds for divorce. We know that if there's a lot of arguments in the home, there's bitterness and fighting, that's ground for divorce because God's calls peace. We know that if our spouse thinks one way, on issues and we think on a different way on, a, on the same issue, that's grounds of divorce because of irreconcilable differences. How do we know all this? By imbibing the philosophies 
of the world, which are pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. The knowledge in the gospel which addresses such things as laziness, verbal and physical abuse. There are biblical answers to these things. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, lies, deceit, all of which, when addressed in sinful people, can and will transform them into loving husbands and respectful wives. We've seen it happen in Christian counseling all the time. But if we don't believe God anymore, if we believe and imbibe the things that the world has accepted, we're not doing our job. This is why we can do everything from marrying an unbeliever in the first place to divorcing him, him or her later when the marriage fails. We didn't enter into it with the right. You say, well, am I not entitled to my opinion? You're entitled as a Christian to think the thoughts of Christ. Do we do that perfectly? No. Do we sin in not doing it perfectly? Yes. Do we pay the consequences? Yes. Not only Paul, did Paul talk about demolishing arguments and pretensions of men which exalt themselves above the knowledge of God, he goes on to say, we take every thought captive to make it, listen to it, to make it obedient to Christ. You are not entitled to your opinion on matters as a Christian any more than I am entitled to my opinion. As believers in the God who has revealed in the Bible his position on every subject dealing with human nature and with the interrelations of people with other people, we are honor-bound as the subjects of this king to adopt his position as our own. And that is where our faith is to be placed, in Christ who has become to us, Paul says, wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. But how do we do this? Do we do this? Well, we do not. Instead, we are all enamored with the subjectivism and independent spirit of our godless age. The world thinks what it wants to think, does what it wants to do, says what it wants to say, and we desire the same kind of irrational and God-opposed subjectivism too, but we aren't so bold as to say it that way. We know we're to have a biblical basis for our actions. So we search ways to distort the scripture to our own destruction. To tack a Bible verse to our thinking in an attempt to Christianize our thinking. And to whitewash the outside like the Pharisees did. Though the thought itself is right out of the pit of the hell. You can't. Sanctify evil thoughts. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth, then whatever opposes it in thought, word, and deed is, is to that extent false. Truth is devoid of error. It's truth is devoid of deceit. And while it may be true that flexibility is warranted in some of the methodology, Paul understood that the gospel is not negotiable. We've not always seen this. That's what he's fighting here at Corinth. 
the super apostles are saying, eh, don't listen to Paul. He's old-fashioned. You know, we have a more sophisticated message for you. Because of the prominence and subjectivism and independent spirit within the American culture, we are extremely reluctant to measure that spirit by the word of God and when found wanting to abandon it. We find it much easier to reinterpret the gospel to make it conform to our culture than to challenge the culture. Our own wrong thinking, challenge that and make them conform to the wisdom of Christ. But Paul says that in the text. That's what we need to do. Make no mistake about it, the gospel will transform people in that the culture will be transformed as well when we're transformed. Isn't that what the culture's looking for? Genuineness in our Christianity? I think so. But this can only happen as we are salt and light, not zombies, not robots, parroting back the party line, but people who are living out in the culture the Christian principles of righteousness. And thus we reshape Christ to our thinking. And when we do that, we end up with a different Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 4. One that wasn't preached in the gospel. Let me put it as boldly as I can. We are created folks. Created death. It is God who made us and not we ourselves. The willful drive for independence is the basic foundation of all sin. It is the root evil which brings upon men the wrath of God. This was Satan in the garden. You can be like God, Eve, if you just eat this fruit. Oh, like God. Yeah, I'd like to be God. Paul says that we did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And as a result, God gave us over to a depraved mind. It is only the gospel which weans that depravity from our thinking and brings us back to God. A depraved mind is a mind that's empty of the knowledge of God. It's a mind which exists to exalt itself in pride against God. It's like Satan in his fall. I will be like the Most High. I will raise my throne above the clouds. We read it in the scriptures. If you think that way to the extent that your thoughts are not held captive to Christ, then you are thinking with a sinful heart. If you're not being reformed and conformed, to the image of the Jesus of the Bible, then your faith is vain. You are proud. You're arrogant. And men cannot know God from a position of arrogance and pretension. He's the Lord of glory. You're his creature. If we can just get that basic principle. I don't get to tell God what I think of him or how he should run the universe or how he should allow people to enter heaven. Or if there's such a place as hell, I don't get to tell God, but he gets to tell me. 
So if that's you this morning, I call on you to repent and come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Your construct of life, your construct of truth is skewed if it's all about you, me, myself, and I. That's the world. And all believers here, it's past time for you to return to the gospel in your thinking and in your actions, not so, the so-called wisdom of the world. May God forgive us for our times of apostasy when we said, oh yeah, that looks pretty good. But if we knew the book better, we'd say, no, I don't think God wants me to go down that direction. Get a biblical grip on your thought life and it'll change your life for the better. Why? Because God blesses the person, the family, the couple, the children that obey him. And there's no obedience to God without Jesus Christ and his spirit. Lord, grant to us the thought that we are, are not independent of you. If you would just help us with that, that'd be great. We are creatures, and as creatures, we're subject to the Lord of the universe. We don't get to instruct you. You get to instruct us. And it is a great mercy for you to instruct us. You could just leave us go on in utter bliss and ignorance, right into the pit of hell, as all men will end up who do not repent of their arrogance and their pride and their self-sufficiency. Meet with us today, please, Lord. Stir our hearts. Start with us who know or say we know you as Savior. And yet, maybe we're like these super apostles that came into the city of Corinth and began to brag and boast about what they knew and what they could do and all this and that. They weren't humble. They weren't meek. And they tried to steal God's sheep away from Paul and the truth of the gospel. And be with anyone here that doesn't know you. May today you find them and draw them to faith in you. Maybe they've been sitting on the fence, not committing to you, having heard the gospel many times. Or there's some other impediment, some big sin in their life, and they think you won't forgive it. But you will. You've promised to do that. I pray this for your glory and our good, that you will answer these prayers. Thank you for each one here today. Lord, bless and honor yourself. And Jesus, thank you for being such a wonderful Savior. How do you put up with us? It's because of your great love. Amen.